to keep those uh, words open in front of you. Fantastic words that they are. Uh, let's pray and ask for God's help. Gracious God, we thank you for this chapter. Thank you for all that it has assured us and shown us of your commitment to your people. And Father, as we look at these wonderful things today, please embed them deep in our hearts and lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Brilliant. I've told, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. Most of you are very obedient children. Wow, you didn't know that one. If I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. So the saying goes. Uh, usually I heard it in relation to probably leaving washing all over the place or something like that. I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, but old habits sometimes die hard. Often when we get told things, it takes a while for them to filter through. And I think we can have that same experience in our Christian lives as well, right? How can I know if God is for me? How can I know if God is on my side? We are told every, pretty much every time we open our Bibles, we'll be reminded that, well, my standing before God is based upon his love for me and his grace for me and all that he has done for me in the Lord Jesus. It's not to do with my performance. And yet, when we mess up and fail, as we so often do, and that was Paul's focus really through chapter 7, his struggle with sin, when things go wrong or seemingly go wrong in our lives and we're going through difficult times, that's been much of chapter 8, all of a sudden, these, these doubts can creep into our lives. Is he really for me? Does he love me at least as much as I thought he did? Well, today, as, as Jen alluded to in her introduction, we've really come to the, the, the peak of the mountainous assurance that we're given through Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at the verses that we've just had read over two weeks, so we're not going to cover them all today. But they really are the peak and the pinnacle of the assurance that we can have as God's people. And they really are a, a conclusion. They're kind of a summary. So if you see how verse 31 begins, it says, What then shall we say to these things? All these things that we've heard, all these things that we've had said through Romans chapter 8. What, what should we say? But just before we get to that, can I just very briefly recap and just enjoy these things? that we've seen that are true for God's people through Romans 8. Okay, for those who are in Christ, for those who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is now no condemnation. They've been set free from sin and death. We have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, which gives us certainty of a future physical resurrection. We've been adopted into God's family. We can call God Father. We will be glorified with Jesus. Though we are groaning now, we look forward to being perfected and living in a perfect new creation. We have the Holy Spirit who helps us in our weaknesses, helps us when we don't know what to pray. He's interceding for us. 
God is at work in all things for our good until we are glorified. What wonderful things we've seen through Romans chapter 8. What do we say in response to all those things? What should we conclude? And we, we, us, uh, Christian, not everyone in the room will be, we're Christians, not everyone will be trusting the Lord Jesus, but for those who are, even as Christians, those who are troubled by the memory of a, a moral lapse, those who are worried for their children, those who are facing serious health issues, those who feel like outsiders because of their faith. But what do we say in the light of those situations? How do we bring together these wonderful things that we've seen are true for God's people? Well, Paul says, think. That's what he does. But what Paul does is he he asks five questions, five rhetorical questions. But but questions get us thinking, don't they? We look at the first four today. And the first one, um, sorry, Andy, could, could you go to it? The first one there is, well, who can be against us? You find it there right at the end of verse 31. Who can be against us? Us, God's people, who can be against us? But actually, if you just ask that question, a rather superficial and obvious answer to that is, well, a lot. A lot can be against Christians. As God's people, as, as the church as a whole, governments can be against us. The false church. And religious establishments can be against us. People in the local area who take against you because of the gospel can be against us. Satan can be against us. He is against us. As Christians individually, again, Satan is against us. Your boss might be against you. An irrationally hostile neighbor might be against you. See, many people are going to oppose God's people for different reasons at different times and in different ways. But it is precisely because Paul knows that that he asked this question. Because, but did you notice, though, it's not quite the question that Paul asked. I've missed out the rather crucial half of the sentence. See, so let, let me read the, the full one there. If God is for us, who can be against us? Grab the next slide, Andrew. If God is for us, Who can be against us? Do you you see how that that changes the question? By by against us, Paul doesn't just mean don't like us very much or seeking to harm us in some way. No, loads of people are going to do that. But what they can't do is they can't prevail. They can't triumph. If God is for us, no one and no thing can possibly triumph over us. No one, no thing can overpower, crush, or destroy us. Just think back to, again, verse 28 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. God is at work in all things for the good of those who love him. God is working even in those times when people oppose and seek to harm, yet God is at work. They can't prevail because God is working for good. One writer, I think, really really helpfully highlights that perhaps the most terrifying phrase you could hear from God's mouth is, I am against you. And Actually, that that is something that we read a number of times through the Old Testament. The nations who are against God's people, 
God says, I am against you. Terrifyingly, it's sometimes said to God's people, own people, and particularly their, their failing and corrupt leaders. I am against you. To have God, the righteous, holy, all-knowing, all-powerful God against you is a terrifying thing. But to God's people now, that is no longer the case. As, as we'll see just in a moment, Paul is confidently able to assert that God is for us. And therefore, any opposition, any um, act of Satan and his minions and anything else may try, might gather together, but they can never prevail if God is on our side. You know that, that little year seven who walks into school on the first day with their massive backpack? They're tiny, they're dwarfed by everything, and they're, they're overwhelmed by the size of anything. But yet this little year seven is walking like they're ten feet tall because right over their shoulders are their big brothers. Far more than that. If God is for us, who could be against us? Sickness, Satan, scary people. Yes, but no. I'll never win. Brothers and sisters, grasp hold of this. This rock-solid assurance that if God is for you, nothing can be against you. Nothing will prevail against you. Let that make an impact on your life in the midst of trouble when going through that hardship. Cling on to this. But there will again be people here this morning who, who are very conscious of the fact that you're a sinner and the fact that you've fallen and even yet again. And maybe you're having those doubts, well, how do I know that God is for me? Well, this is our, our second point. Over on the slide. So our second question that Paul will ask is, well, how could he not give us all things? That's, that's my slight summary. Have a look um, in verse, uh, at the second half of verse 32. How will he not also with him, that's with Jesus, graciously give us all things? So the question is, is whether God will give us all things. Well, what, what are the all things, first of all? Um, he's not talking about the worldly desires of our hearts. So he's not saying, yet yeah, the Ferrari and the holiday home or the job you want and the latest phone are all yours, don't worry. It's all the all things that God intends for us. It's the all things that God has been speaking of in this chapter. All of those things that I went through that we've seen. God will give, surely give all those things to his children. Surely he will bring them to the inheritance and glory at the end. But again, our, our failures, our faltering, and indeed sometimes our outright rebellion can lead us to doubt whether God really will. We're, we're fearful that perhaps sometimes God might just kind of turn off that tap of, of the blessings and, and the things that we need. I can think of far too many reasons in my sinful heart and my sinful life why, might, why God might not give me all things. But again, you'll pick up the pattern. I've missed off half the sentence, haven't I? The crucial half. 
How can we be sure that he will will meet our needs? How can we be sure, indeed, that God is for us? Well, let me read now the whole of verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? God didn't spare his son, but gave him up. How could he not? Give us all things. How do we know that God is for us? Well, well, Paul points to the cross. At the cross, God didn't spare his son, but gave him up. The the sparing his son has echoes of um, Abraham and Isaac, if you know the story from the Old Testament. Abraham, who's up there ready and willing to sacrifice his own son, but God spares him. God spares Isaac. He spares Abraham his son, and yet God did not spare his own son. And the word gave up is the one used in the Gospels for what Judas and the priests and Pilate did for Jesus. They gave him up to be crucified. But as someone wrote, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Jesus, sorry, not Judas for money. Not Pilate for fear, not priests for envy, but the Father for love. Jesus was delivered up. He was given over by a loving Father. And Paul is arguing from the greater to the lesser. In giving his son, he's given everything. I have two sons. I would spare them anything I possibly could. But just as we can't know what it costs Jesus to go onto the cross and to endure the Father's wrath, so we can't comprehend what it cost the Father to give up his Son. God went to the limit. He, he gave everything. And the point is that if, if we have God who is willing to sacrifice his Son on behalf, well, how can we doubt that he will give us anything that is trivial by comparison? He gave us what is most dear and most precious, then what could he not give us? The cross is the guarantee of the continuing, unfailing generosity of God's. It's simply impossible for him not to do so. He's given it all. Of course he will give anything else. Again, I think we so easily, easily can naturally can lapse into thinking, particularly when we've messed up, oh, I'm not sure God loves me anymore. Or at least, I'm not sure he loves me as much as he once did. God gave his son. God gave his son. What more could he give? What more could he do for you and me? And if he has given us his son, he will surely do, give us everything we need until we get to glory. Question Paul asks there at the beginning of verse 33. Who, uh, verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring any charge? Um, I've titled there, who can accuse us? So for this one and for the final one, Paul brings us into the courtroom, the law courts. 
And, and as it were, he kind of sits us in the dock. There we are. And the charge is this legal accusation. And, and Paul kind of looks around the courtroom and kind of asks, so who can accuse this person, these people? Now again, when we start thinking about that, we're immediately probably quite worried. An awful lot of people could accuse me. An awful lot of people could accuse me of unfaithfulness to God's. Satan, the, the, the name Satan means accuser. He is the opposition of God's people. He is the accuser of God's people. And Satan again and again makes that charge. You've been unfaithful in God's service. That's the charge. And that stings because it's true. And again, some people here this morning, you, you, you hear that charge and perhaps Satan's been telling you that all week. You failed. You failed. You've been unfaithful again and again and again and again. How could you possibly be acceptable to God? Satan could accuse us. Your spouse, I'm sure, could accuse you. you know, the person who sees the worst of you, the biggest gap from the you at church, they see all those things. Someone you've wronged or you've hurt in some way, they could accuse Again, perhaps most clearly of all, your conscience may accuse. We've, again, seen what we've done or perhaps what we've, we've seen we've, we've failed to do, what we haven't done. Now, our consciences are good gifts from God to, to help us in our walk with him. They're good things. But our consciences could lay a million accusations each day. And again, of course, don't they, 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 things love to come together. Satan loves to whisper your ear and work with your conscience. Leading sometimes to this self-condemnation, these, these many accusations. There are many people who, who could take the stand, as it were, to lay these accusations. But Paul is saying that none of those accusations are going to stick. No prosecution case can succeed. Why? Well, this time the reason is after the verse, but verse 33, who can bring any charge against God's elect? No one. Why? It is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. Paul reminds us of who God is. God is the judge. In that courtroom, God is the judge. And Paul reminds us what God has already done. God justifies that means he gives that, um, that verdict of innocence, not guilty, innocence. He declares, no, you are, you are righteous in Jesus. Not only have your sins been pardoned and dealt with, but actually you've been given that perfect record. God is the judge and he has given the verdict and it is innocence. It's that end time judgment date, but the verdict is given now for God's people. Because the, the greatest possible danger for every single human being is facing the wrath of God on that final day. Might Christians have to face that? No. No, it is God himself who has pronounced the verdict. He's not going to change his mind. And there is no higher court or authority that someone might go to 
God justifies. So Paul there, he's taken us to the courtroom, he's seated us in the docks, and God has given us the verdict, not guilty, innocent. And yes, there are murmurings and mutterings from around the courtroom, but, but, the gravel, the gavel, gravel, gavel, comes down, innocent, not guilty. The verdict's been given. Who can accuse us? No one. God justifies it. Again, how can we be sure? Well, we'll see in a moment. Again, we look at the cross. But, but actually, even there's a little clue in the question, if you spotted it there in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? God's elect against those whom God has chosen. And again, doesn't that remind us of the verses that we just had in verse 29 and 30? When we saw that unbreakable chain, just look at verse 30. Those whom he predestined, we're missing one, but those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. If he has justified, what will he certainly do? Glorify. Certainty. And then the final question we're going to look at today is who can condemn us? Who can condemn us? Have a look at verse, beginning of verse 34. Who is to condemn? Here Paul is very much reinforcing and building upon what he's just said. He's saying, look, who in their accusations could possibly, in their accusations, lead to a guilty verdict and the punishment that follows? No one. Interestingly, John, in his first letter, says sometimes that our hearts may condemn us. Again, our hearts that know us and know the, the, our, our failings and our weaknesses and our rebellions. Our hearts might condemn us, but, but again, Paul says no. No one. And again, why? Let's look at the whole of verse 34. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ, no one, the answer implied no one. Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So there, who can condemn us? No one. Why? Well, because Jesus died, rose, and is now interceding for us. Let's go through those steps and just see how, again, this gives us such total assurance that there can be no condemnation. So first off, why? Well, Jesus Christ is the one who died. Jesus died. And if you remember back in chapter 8, verse 3, we saw that sin was condemned in his flesh. Jesus was condemned. And again, one writer says that payments, payment God cannot twice demand. Once at my bleeding Savior's hands and then again at mine. No, Jesus has endured that full condemnation and God can't demand it a second time. That's not just. And no, so since chapter 8, verse 3, he was condemned, chapter 8, verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There'll be no condemnation, well, because Jesus died. Not only did he die, but more than that, back in verse 34, we're carrying on, more than that, he was raised. Earlier in the book, Paul writes that he was raised for our, just, our, our justification. Jesus' resurrection was the vindication showing that Jesus' sacrifice had indeed worked. 
their justification had been secured. But more than just being raised, uh, he goes on, um, who is now at the right hand of God and is indeed interceding for us. A couple of weeks ago, didn't we, we saw the Spirit interceding for us. Well, here's Jesus interceding for us. His presence is, is evidence of the completed work on the cross. And his intercession means that he continues to secure all of his benefits for his people. As long as Jesus is there in heaven, which he will always be, there will be no condemnation. When the Father and the Son are both standing for us, there is surely no opposition that could possibly threaten us. Who can condemn us? No one. Jesus died. He rose. He has ascended and is now interceding for his people. We've been told, if we've been told a thousand times, we'll need to be told a thousand more because we're so prone to forget these things. But four wonderful things to cling on to in the, the awareness of our own failures and troubles and wrongdoings, when Satan and our consciences and maybe others would love to accuse us, love to say, well, because you've done that, because you're that bad, well, God doesn't love you as much as he, he, he used to. When, when those things creep in, four things to absolutely cling to, to remind ourselves of the rock-solid assurance that we have. And, and when things seemingly going wrong in our lives when we're going through difficulties and hard times and suffering of any of various forms. And we think, is this a sign of God's displeasure? Surely God wouldn't do this for someone he loved. Again, remember these things. God is for us. He's given his son for us. He has justified us. And therefore there will be no condemnation. And never could. What wonderful things to cling on to. Let's pray that we would. Well, thank you so much for these, these verses. The reminder of your utter commitment to your people. That unshakable, unchanging commitment to your people. Father, in the midst of, of suffering, in the midst of awareness of our sinfulness, please, Father, would we cling to these things? And would we treasure and hold on to them? Lord, we believe them, but Lord, also help us in our unbelief. Father, please would these be so precious that we give honour and glory to Lord Jesus. In his name we pray.